Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh <laughs> and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. In this second part of a two-part podcast, I'm delving deeper into the eventful life of Andrew Pritchard. In part one, we chatted about his massive warehouse raves, the amount of money he used to earn, how he evaded the police for years, and the moment his lifestyle caught up with him. In this part, we talk about Andy's life on the run, how he became a drug kingpin of a smuggling empire, and when it all finally came crashing down. We joined the chat just as he decided to flee the country after pressure from the police. Here he is again, Mr. Andrew Pritchard. So at that time, I decided to, you know, make my exit. Um, I, well, I left this country uh, in the heat of the night. And uh, <laughs> back then, used to have, rather than the actual full passport, used to have a, like a, a, a paper thing you could get from the post office in anyone's name, <laughs> put your picture in there. So I got one of those off my friend. I flew down to uh, France, Paris, just yeah. literally boarded a flight, landed. I ironically stayed at a place called Hotel California. <laughs> I spent like about 12, 13 weeks in there. Anyway, um, it was really a nice little hotel. It was like across the road to the uh, Cafe de Paris and yeah. everything yeah, yeah. like that. But that was getting a bit bored. So I then had an ex-girlfriend fly up with a legitimate red book for me. Yeah. Um, then I used that to get a, a visa. I flew to Miami. I arrived in Miami. I was sitting in Miami. I was there for about four months. I had family, relatives, little network of people out there. And um, then it was time for my next leg of my journey, which, of course, was my mother's birthplace and, you know, my spiritual home, Jamaica. Yeah. So I arrived in Jamaica and um, that was the beginning of another journey. So I started off um, in Jamaica. I was, I was put to stay with very respectable relatives yeah. who were politically connected and very established. Yeah. And um, they were basically keeping an eye on me, you know, to make sure I didn't get myself into any madness. But of course, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Didn't last long. Um, I enjoyed going out. I enjoyed having fun. And you were limited to where you could go, that of the nightlife scene. You had two different sorts of nightlife. You had downtown, you had uptown. Yeah. I was around uptown people. I was introduced to a, a young lady. Um, her father was a prominent politician. Um, she fell pregnant for me and I had my first son. And uh, a really good friend of hers became my very close friend, godfather to my eldest boy. His father was a prominent politician in sitting government, you know. In Jamaica. In Jamaica, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we were in a very elite circle of political people who were highly positioned. So it was kind of really, you know, having fun, enjoying it. Um, and then I remember one night being me and being a bit of a, you know, wouldn't it be a bit loud? I wasn't, you know, big fat guy I am now. I was quite not a bad looking fellow, believe it or not, Dodge, you know what I mean? I've, I've seen the photos, I'm, mate. I'm full of birds, You're right? a good looking lad. And uh, I remember one day it's this place called Super Diesel, it was the junction and stuff, um, going out towards Old Harbour, where they have what they call street dances. And you've yeah. got like a sound system that plays out there. Yeah. You've got Higglers on the side of the road who sell like dragon stats and yeah. Rizzlers, them kind of thing. So I've gone to get a drink. Anyway, I've bought these drinks. I'm coming back. And I've seen this girl stand in the car. She was absolutely stunning. I was like, wow. So me, East End boy, thinking I've got all the swag, I've walked up to her. I said, you like a drink? She looks at me and goes, no, but you look like you need one. Yeah. 
And I thought, what a knockback. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I've gone up with a cuff of chicky bitch. So I've gone to my pal, got Paul. I said, what the fuck? Who's she? Yeah. She says, look, it's gone, Miss Jamaica. Yeah. Right? I was like, what? He's gone, she's just come back, just finished Miss World. She's back on the yeah. island. Yeah. So I'm fitting there, plotting. Now she's embarrassed me. I'm feeling even more disturbing yeah. to, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. may get my prey. Anyway, the following week, we've gone out to a club called Godfathers where we were always, you know, that's our regular little haunt. I've seen her in there again. We spoke, do you know what I mean? It was quite nice, you know, we brought tables over, we sit and we're drinking and then I kidnapped her in the nicest possible way yeah. and we went away for like a week, you know what I mean? Yeah. Travelled through the island and I ended up, um, yeah, having a child with her. Okay. Okay. And this was a very short period of time. My, you know, Mishka, yeah. she was pregnant, um, still carried a baby, so there was like four months between the two yeah. kids, which wasn't obviously, you know, um, I wasn't covered in glory, yeah, let's put it yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. sometimes you go with your heart yeah. and you can't help that. Yeah. It happens, yeah. you know. And it's no reflection on anyone. Mm. That's how life takes us sometimes. You know, we human beings, we're men, you know, we yeah. we go for our passion, we follow yeah. our passion. And um, yeah, I was there and I was good. I was, you know, trying to be the family man and tried really hard to fit into that life and really kind of calm down. I did for a little while. Were I you was, actually we were actually on the run from when I left, I left at a, a time where it could have been very problematic for me and the police. Let's put it like that. Really? Okay. So it was good time to leave. And, uh, you know. Do you remember how much ecstasy you were bringing in, well, numbers wise? In, in distribution, like yeah. a tea distribution. Yeah. Distribution, approximately. It started off when we really knew the numbers because back then, what used to happen was you used to get them in. Um, sashes of 5,000 pills. That's yeah. how they used to arrive. And they used to be weighed. So what happened is, basically, it was um, cotton wool put at each end to stop the breakage. Yeah. They come through and you used to weigh them. Yeah. Now, we moved approximately at the beginning. We started off initially with 50,000. We moved to 250,000. By the end of the rain, we were close to a million tablets. Wow. So that was literally... Wow. We had the club industry. Coming in where, from where? They were coming from Holland. From Holland into from where? Holland. They were coming into the market. A lot of them were coming in in flowers. They used to have Covent Garden Market at the time. Yeah. We used to bring in, because what it was, you used to bring stuff for in um, perishable goods yeah. because, you know, apples, things like that. But because of the delicacy of the of the pills, you used to have a lot of breakages back yeah. then, right? And that's actually another interesting thing. Added. Okay. The next tablet come along, yeah. the capsules. Yeah. So... They used to come through flowers, mainly. But other people had different trades. But we don't know people bringing those pills in. Yeah. Other people had their own methods of bringing them. But um, flowers were dominantly what it was because they were very, very light, tulips, things like that and stuff. So people would handle them with care. Yeah. And obviously the weight as well, we used to have to match perfectly to what a box is yeah. to the things, yeah. you know. So that's how they used to arrive in the country. And obviously they'd be distributed, as I said. They used to be weighed because you couldn't count them. Yeah. There were so yeah, fucking many of them. Yeah. So <laughs> people used to love the job of the final count because yeah. on the final count, on every packet of 5,000, <laughs> um, I had some guys, what they used to do was, so they used to have to go through and count them into thousands, yeah. but you might have 100 breakages in there or 200. That's why the weight used to overweigh yeah. them. So out of the dust now, all the breakages, they thought, fuck, you can't throw them away. So we started to put them in the capsules. And they were clear capsules originally, and then they'd, the chemist we used to get them from stopped selling the um, clear ones. Yeah. And they had a blackened... Uh, red yeah. capsule. With all, like, remember Dino yeah. magazine, yeah, Dennis yeah, yeah, the Menace? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those were really the Dennis the Menaces, those capsules. The reason why they were so strong was because you used to put the, the powder in there and you've got excessive powder. So it yeah. wasn't equivalent to one tablet. One and a half tablet. Got it. 
And of course, the taps will open up quicker yeah. than the tablet would because of the coating. Yeah. So people just hit people straight away. Yeah. So, you know, again, that was just another canny invention that came out of something yeah. which um, no one would even consider. Do you remember how much they were per pill to bring in the country back then? Yeah, well, I never brought them into the country. Yeah. I used to get them when they were here. Yeah. And the pills here, I remember starting off with them, we used to get them um, distributed to eight pounds. And then we got them down to fivers, yeah. you know? So that's quite a big difference. Yeah. Considering they used to sell for 20 quid. 15, And they used to, yeah, and yeah. they used to wholesale them at 15. Yeah. That was a huge profit margin. Because wow. generally speaking, you'd be happy making a pound or a pound a tablet. Yeah. Because of the volumes that you're doing, yeah. you know? But as I said, as they became more accessible in the clubs and more people were bringing pills, the prices slowly but surely started to move down. Okay. But they started up at 25, 30 pound. Originally in 88, wow. and they started to slowly go down, you know, like five at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until yeah. I don't know what they sell at in clubs yeah. now. God knows what they are. So that was a journey with ecstasy, you know. And then, as I said, getting to Jamaica, I had to have a, you know, normal life. And uh, my marriage fell apart, yeah. you know, and stuff. And uh, I came back to England. Well, I did come back to England. How long were you in Jamaica for? I was in Jamaica at that time for four years. Four years. Yeah, just, just to away stay away from, from it. From it. <laughs> stay away from it, yeah. <laughs> And I came back um, with my wife and my child, yeah. um, and one of my oldest children was they stayed in Jamaica. Yeah. And um, what was the next step? What was the next movement when you got back to England? It was a question of what I do next, and um, I thought, you know what, I can't be sitting here and do the same old, same old. So I thought, opportunities are open to me in Jamaica. If I go back up there, a lot of people I know here yeah. are in that game, and I've got access to many things. So I went back up there. Um, and I thought, let's see what I can do. Now, in the interim, when I was in Jamaica, as straight as I was trying to be, I couldn't help myself, you know. So I started to import cars, but the cars back then were funny because you used to pay a huge amount of duty on vehicles. Yeah. It was like a vehicle over 3,000 cc, yeah. it was 260% duty wow. to bring them in. Right, okay. So imagine buying a car, let's say, for £10,000, you'd have to go and pay... 26 grand yeah. in duty, if it's yeah. 20,000, yeah. it's a huge amount yeah, of money. Yeah, yeah. So I had a good network of politicians, I had a good network of people who were heavyweight drug smugglers who wanted nice cars. And I thought, if I can get these cars in without paying the amount of duty, yeah. I can make a lot of money. Yeah. So I got to know someone, he was a customs broker, and he said to me, look, he said, you know what, I can actually do something with these books. All you've got to do is put old pair of tires on now, Bring the clock down, uh, bring the clock up, yeah. right? You know, put an old steering wheel on there, put some old shitty pedals on there. He said, and when they go through, he said, I can value them on a, on a different yeah. model. Yeah. So I said, okay. So anyway, I've got two, but a glasses guide and another one. I've got the other one yeah. that's called the two different guides. The old glasses guide, British, remember that? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I started to do it. Started to get orders for it. Started yeah. to bring cars through. Started to make quite a good money yeah. out of it, you know. And I started my own car rental business down there and the bike rental business. So it was nice. I'd moved to where the were you? Where o were you? Ocherias. Okay. I moved to. I've lived in Kingston originally. Yeah. I moved to Ocherias, yeah. which is on the north coast of yeah. the island, very no. tourist, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. tourist place yeah. really, you know. And uh, yeah, I so I was familiarised with that. When my marriage fell apart, you know, so did the business. I came back to England, and I thought, you know. I'm going to go back up there and see what can happen. I went back up there um, and friends used to come up who had very good contacts down there at the fruit markets, places like that. A lot of people wanted to work down there, but they couldn't because they fear of being robbed, yeah. you know, um, fear of giving over their money yeah. and not doing things being done they wanted yeah. to get done. So I kind of had opportunity to do that. I went down there 
um, I had someone very close to my uh, family, who I just called his extended family, who was a very established smuggler. You know, he'd left there in the seventies and he grew, he grew, you know, he grew yeah. massively. He yeah. used to bring, uh, not just weed from Jamaica to England. He used to bring lots of weed in the seventies from Columbia added to Miami. That time used to have something called Colombian gold, which yeah. used to grow in vast, vast, vast volumes, yeah. you know? And so he had very, very strong connections right across, um, South America. And he was like an original member of the Eastern Caribbean cartel, which obviously captures that Caribbean that pocket. Market, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he sort of said to me, look, you're going to get killed. You know, you're down there. I don't know what the hell you're doing. And this is dangerous. He said place. that to you. Yeah. yeah. And I said, look, um, I'm going to take you under my wing. You know, I don't want it for you. I'm retired from the business, yeah. but I'm not going to let you go out there and do this mistakes, and walk into yeah, this okay, yeah. madness, yeah. you know. So he made me some good introductions. He introduced me to a guy called Blacker Dooch. And uh, Blacker, he was what they called Don. So in different constituencies, um, you've got garrisons. So a politician will hold a various parish. Yeah. And within that parish, what will happen is the constituencies, garrisons, are very important that they win those in election time. So they'll have what they call a don. And the don's basically... Um, the don. The don. Yeah. The O-N. Like yeah. a deadly yeah. mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The don. don. Yeah, yeah. And then what they do is they basically are able to guarantee the votes will go in a certain direction. And in turn, they're given favour. So they'll get road contracts. And obviously, they'll have great access to do what they want to do. Yeah. And, uh, <clears> you know, he basically had great access to all the ports and the airports and the wharfs and the docks. So we went into business together and, uh, you know, we just put vast amounts of marijuana uh, into the country because, of course, the markup when it was insane because back then um, we used to be able to buy what was described as high-grade weed. Now, that used to go down, it used to buy for £50 a pound weight. Yeah. Now, how it used to look was it was insane. You drive down, you've got different parts. You've got St. Elizabeth, which is a huge parish where my mum came from yeah. on the south coast. You've got the grill, which is a very um, prime place to yeah. you know, buy high-quality weed from. Yeah. And uh, used to go to hand there. People would know you're arriving. We set up what we call a camp, the factory. Yeah. So that was this man in itself. So you'd go through off-road into this bush. You used to have these, yellow, um, these blue tarpaulins over the top. And then you'd have, like, literally a blue tarpaulin on the floor. Farmers would be coming with these crocus sacks of weed yeah. on the stem. You'd be buying those. They'd be sitting, these women sitting in a group with these little sharp knives. They'd be called manicuring the weed. Yeah. They'd take taking out all the sticks of the seeds yeah. and putting all the buds into this big thing. Yeah. Then you'd have another session with this massive press, which is man-made, two bits of railroad track, the 10-ton press welded into it. Then you'd have the weed dropped into a bag weighed, dropped into a press, depending on what yeah. you're going to import it through. Could be circular, could be square, yeah. shape, sizes, whatever you want. That'd be pressed down, all in the hot sun, by the way. And, uh, you know, then one guy would be wrapping it, do you know what I mean, with cellophane. Another one goes over it at incredible speed with with tape. Then you've got this thing we used to make, it, our own dog repellent. We used to get pimento leaves, blend those down, and paint them over the, over the packets. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. used to drop those on the back of a big... Sugarcane lorry, because yeah. of course those sugarcane lorries yeah. are stacked. Massive, yeah. You'd never unload yeah. them. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did. Or you know, if the product was 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 you know had greater value, we'd get an ambulance. Yeah. So we'd load up the ambulance, take the ambulance through on red lights going through <laughs> Kingston. Yeah. What just bunging everyone? 
Yeah, looking well, after no, we used to, ambulance, very rare ambulance would get stopped. Yeah. So what used to happen was, you used to get the ambulance, you'd load it up, obviously, with product. I saw some poor cunt in the back with a broken leg and literally just run it down from the grill straight away through Kingston, you yeah. know what I mean, yeah. on sirens. Yeah. But obviously, with a bigger shipment, so you used to use a sugarcane lorries because sugarcane lorries used to draw sugarcane out. They're, I mean, they're like 20, 30 foot high, yeah. some of those stacks yeah. of sugarcane. So if you could imagine, you'd get a few tons of weed Drop to the bottom of that. And when it gets to Kingston now, or Montego Bay, where the dock is, yeah. where we're going to send it from, then it's unloaded, obviously. And then the gear's got to. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because a lot of the police are quite lazy down there. Yeah. So if they did do a routine pull of a yeah. search, the last thing you're going to do is start unloading the things yeah. like that. Yeah, It'll yeah, happen, yeah. right? So that was more or less our route, you know. And then it was funny because we used to have, like, you know, be cooking all this food, be working day and night. You're at the, you're at the deepest part of the bush. Yeah. And uh, I looked at it and I thought, fucking hell, this, is, this, is, this ain't good because the smoke's coming off <laughs> of the fire. And then you're thinking, it's bright um, blue tarpaulin. If a police helicopter yeah. or an army helicopter Straight sees away. it, yeah, yeah. they're on it. And yeah. a lot of people were getting hit like yeah. that. So I thought, okay. So we used to have a shop called Silver's, uh, Silverman's down here. It was one of them old army shops. And what they used to sell was all the army stuff. So I said, right, do me a favor. I said, I want camouflage netting, right? Get as much as you can get. I want smokeless cookers, right? And while you're at it, go down to Brick Lane. I said, and I want you to buy me 50 string vests, yeah. right? I said, and do me a favor. Go to the sports shop, right? And go and buy a dozen Arsenal, a dozen West Ham, and a dozen Chelsea football <laughs> tops, right? Anyway. When they came back down and sent it back in barrels, what we'd done was we created our own camp. So the camp had the camouflage netting over the top, which displaced the blue parpolin. We had the smokeless cookers so it wouldn't give the smoke. And then all the guys working, they used to drive me mad for foot, British football team. They loved it all. Yeah. So just to give them all the football top, whatever they wanted, right? And a string vest. They were like a big thing those guys used to wear out yeah. there, you know? And uh, we're at, so our camp's really efficient, you know what I mean? So if we had a shipment, which was, I don't know, say, Ten thousand pound or fourteen thousand pound a weed or seven thousand, whatever the, the shipment was, yeah. we knew every set up camp we could pretty much, you know, get that job done in the course of like two, three days. Yeah, okay. do you know what I mean, all ready to go. Because How much were you shipping in at the time of weed? It, it, it changed because were you it, shipping from Jamaica straight to the UK? Straight to the UK. And where were you coming in the UK? Straight through. So we were coming in basically. So the beauty being, because of the market, they're all perishable goods. So yeah. every single Night of the week, if you go to a fruit and veg market, there's containers coming in of yams, there's containers coming of mangoes, there's containers of sweet potatoes. Every product you can possibly think is coming in there, literally, either air freight or by cargo ship, yeah. you know, container. Into what docks? They come to both Tilbury, they come into um, in Felixstowe, they come into Portsmouth, they uh, Wells. You know, so in terms of container ships, depending on what route is running, running that thing, because ships logistically as well, remember, a lot of them, they pick up at the Windrush Islands, yeah. uh, which, sorry, the, uh, yeah, the, Wind, the Windward Islands, basically, actually Guyana, all that little capture. Yeah. But all the ships dock in Kingston Harbour, because it's yeah. the biggest harbour yeah. in that region. So what you've got, you've got, the most, you've got all the routes basically coming from Kingston to virtually all the docks here in England, right, okay. depending. The most common ones to London are obviously, you know, um, Portsmouth that comes down from Tilbury, Felixstowe, do you know what I mean? They're very, very popular. Yeah. But obviously you've got Southampton, you've got all the other docks which yeah. still take container ships coming in either from Jamaica or en route from Jamaica, yeah. you know? Yeah. And of course the planes you've got, you know, you've got um, Air Jamaica at the time used to have, 
which is called Ganja Express because so much <laughs> weed was on there. Sometimes the plane couldn't even take off. <laughs> Literally, they were getting fined when it was coming down, and it was it was a mad airline. Yeah. You know, I don't think they fly. They don't fly to England anymore. No. Actually, they they stopped. Did you ever? Did you ever uh, take weed over on a plane? No. Were you always on shipment? No. It was. It was. I was never a. Um, I was never, I, I did never, I'd never done that. I, listen, yeah. I, I used a lot of smuggling methods, but there were more than enough people who wanted to take a shot. But I'd never put people up yeah. in terms of that, without an exit, you know. Yeah. And there was a method we used to use as it goes, which was quite a funny method. We used to get those Samsonite suitcases, which were the oh, hard yeah, back yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we used to get those. What we'd do is we'd put a big scratch down the side of them, right? And then we'd send people down to Jamaica and literally we'd load them to the brim with with weed, load them. You could get anything in yeah. there, right? Just a bit of sponge, yeah. right? To stop the movement. <laughs> and then we'd do the combination on there, right? And then what we'd do is the person would be on the you know the flight coming back now. So they'd have that case our baggage had to put onto the onto the uh, curacao. Then we would have your actual physical suitcase with your dirty clothes in yeah. it, right? So what would happen is when you're coming round He'd pick up the one with a scratch in it, knowing it's full of weed. Yeah. Now, if he got through, it's all good to go. Yeah. But if he got a tug, he'd get tugged by the customs, like, why don't I open a suitcase, sir? And it'd be like, yeah, give him a combination. Of course, it wouldn't open. Yeah. So they'd jimmy it open, oh, cool. full of weed. And he'd be sitting in there, you're arrested, yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah. And he'd be coming, what you're talking about? This ain't my suitcase. <laughs> this ain't my suitcase. And he'd be, you know, going through it. Yeah. And then, of course, they go back to the curacao. And there's his suitcase going around get away on it. its own. Yeah. So when they pull it off now <laughs> and bring it, they punch his combination. That's my oh, suitcase. <laughs> That's my clothes. <laughs> and there was a period of that where they could never prove it. Yeah, quality. So it was literally, even they knew it was happening, like you were getting maybe 10 people. Yeah. On a flight, and I think it was what was it? it was we used to get twenty four uh, kilos. That's the that's a uh, weight, which is about fifty pound a week. Yeah, yeah, which is quite small. Yeah. If you've got ten of those coming in, yeah, you're talking about fifty pound a pound. You're buying the weed for. You're talking about paying three thousand pounds to get the case put onto the carousel yeah. by the bent customs officer. Yeah. You're paying the courier three grand. So you're all in. You know the weed, the um, the weed, the uh, the, the, the the courier to put on. Do you know what I mean? And you're standing in at maybe not even seven grand. Yeah. You're talking twenty six hundred pound a pound. And, and you've got fifty pound in there. No, it's going to cost you. You would get twenty seven hundred pounds yeah. English money yeah. per pound. You've got fifty pounds in one suitcase. Yeah. Got it. So you're turning like a profit, which is standing you insane amount of money yeah. for the outlay. You know. Yeah. So that was good business. So we'd do those. Obviously, we'd load products. products How many years were you doing that for? I suppose we had a good On the weed? A long time. Was it? A long time. A long time. Let's put it like that. Because there was always a new invention. Yeah. You know, we used to do all kinds of things. I mean, we used to make false bottoms. We used to do sardine can. We used to call it the can. So we used to load the bottoms of... um, Bottoms of uh, the, 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 the freight, the container thing you have at the bottom of stuff. Yeah. So you've got boxes on top of it. And underneath you used to have a thing like this, and it was like a pallet, they call it. Yeah. It's a thin pallet. And you'd pack it in there as well. Pack it, and then when it was get out, it was called a sardine. So what they'd just do is just rip it back like a pillow of sardine to yeah, yeah. and then have all the gear in there. But um, I'll be false backs. We till the laser pin come along. The false backs was a blinder. What was the false? What's that? Well, we used to get the container. It was a 40 foot container. Yeah. We'd mark two foot from the back, peel it off, and create a false wall. Yeah. So we used to get the pot rivets, put them in um, vinegar, make them all rusty, <laughs> load it with gear, and then 
punch it back and load it with boxes. <laughs> but of course, they would never get it unloaded, but then they had this laser pen thing. Yeah. They would just go bang. Once they found the back wall, they'd go boom, and then, hold oh, on, that's two foot short. Yeah, you know okay. I mean? So the laser them. pen stopped that? The laser pen stopped much, it, yeah, but yeah. you used to jam them, so the laser pen couldn't get in there. Yeah. That's how you used to do them. But then, you know, they used to run underneath them because you used to put them in the bottom of the boxes. And it was a, it was a constant, it was a cat and mouse yeah, game. Yeah. And it was, it, I mean, we had, listen, we even done um, coffins, yeah. you know, we, you know, pretended people had died, a geezer go out there, pretend that he died, you know what I mean? And that, there was no one out there, went into the British High Commission, said, listen, um, he's come out here, he's met some bird, he's died, do you know what I mean? Like, bring him back. Oh, got to bring him back. Yeah. So then you've got the passport, you've got the entry stamp, the guy gives you and of course, what you do is you load the coffin with weed. You've got two sixty pounds. You get his average body weight. Load that up. But then what you do? The key was you put AIDS. Back then, it was a stigma. Because yeah, yeah. you said AIDS, death of AIDS, yeah. it people get really frightened. Yeah. So you do they weren't going to open the coffin, right? <laughs> so when it used to come through, the undertaker he takes delivery of it. So once you had the undertaker basically on board, yeah. you were good to go. Yeah. You know what I mean, so. <laughs> Any method you could think of, we were literally just one step drilling. Ahead. We were yeah. drilling, and it was like it was it was almost a uh, it was cat and mouse game yeah. constantly. But we always knew when it did come on top with one, you give it a rest for a while. And what people that realise is right. Oh, how can you say this? Because people are getting to mess people up. They know everything, yeah. right? Everything you think you've done, everything you think is new, yeah. has all been tried before. The only reason why you get away with it is because they haven't got the resources or the time to check everything. Yeah. So you have so a it's numbers game. Yeah. It's a numbers yeah. game. It's all it is, you know. And that was what you know we done, and it was like constant, 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 and um, yeah, that carried on, you know, until um, the what game. Was, what was changed. the next step? What, what, what was the next step for you? When well, did that change? Well, that did, you, did you find? Did you find by doing weed? It's, it's such a big, you know, it's everything to do with weed stinks, and it's so big. No, because what you're looking at, you're looking now at um, skunk, yeah. which are these pillars, yeah. which are loose buds. Yeah. Jamaican weed's compressed. Okay. Okay. So what you've got to understand is, right? There was no smell coming out. No, smell coming yeah. out, but it's how you put dog repellent on it. So what it is, the weed's compressed into like a solid brick, yeah. right? So yeah. that's how it's, that's how you do it, right? Okay. right? So it's not like it's skunk and it's yeah, loose yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. bulky, right? Yeah. So you compress it down and then obviously the smell, as you say. Yeah. So we used to have our own different repellents so people used to make me laugh because when we used to work with the Colombians they used to go and say they got this special dog repellent and I was like what the fuck? it must be something super yeah. incredible all it actually was was when a dog's on heat they got a spray that you put on the dog yeah. right and what it does is it does the dog's nose so it can't smell fishes on heat yeah. you used to buy it for like three quid a tin do you know what I mean <laughs> actually like a hundred dollars is charged a tin for this yeah. stuff I thought, what the fuck is this? And what I realised is what it was. So that's what they used as dog repellent. But we had our own. We used to get pimento leaves, as I said, bring those down, and you bring them down like into a, like a mush and literally paint that on one of the layers yeah. and then go over the top of it. And Swarfiga, the stuff you do your hands with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, yeah. that's another good. Gum grease is another one. And they not one million percent. What they do is they take away the smell, the initial smell, and replace it with a different smell. Yeah. It's can a dog smell through that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you say, obviously, it's how you conceal what you conceal yeah. and how you, you know, utilise what you, you make the most of what you're doing and most of what you got, yeah. you know? And that's what it was. It was opportunities. We looked at opportunities and, you know, there was no job too big, no job too small. Do you know what I mean? We would do anything. Do you know what I mean? And then what was the next step for you? Well, 
the next step was I wanted to and go how, back. How old, roughly how old are you now, do you reckon? Uh, now I'm kind of in my 30s. 30s you know? okay. Um, next job was I, I always wanted to stay in touch with music. And um, one of my dreams, because where I started, remember, was in sound systems. And sound systems was like the bottom of the pile kind of thing, doing little parties, little asses. But the dream would always been what was the biggest thing you could do. Yeah. And the biggest thing I remember growing up as a kid was the festival Reggae Sunsplash, yeah. where Bob Marley performed on, Stevie Wonder performed yeah. on. And that was always going to be the dream. And it was bigger than Glastonbury. It was the biggest thing yeah. there was globally because yeah. it was 21 countries. Mm. And I thought... If I want to do anything in my life, that's what I want to do one day. And then opportunity came along that we could make that happen, you know. So I went back down to Jamaica on a very serious note and, you know, put the people together who were original partners in that organisation, created a licence to deal with them. We, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a minefield of complications and yeah, trademarks right. and madness, which because they'd done some really terrible deals along the way yeah. uh, with a lot of unscrupulous people, and it was a complete mess. We managed to untangle it all, a huge expense, huge lawyer's expenses, mm. and we managed to get a license for 50,000 people at Victoria Park. Mm. And then that was it again. I'd brought myself into a system going from that extreme yeah. to legitimacy. Because What made you stop? What made you stop bringing the weed in? Um, to be honest to you, what made me kind of stop was I got to the stage, an incident happened. I had a partner, a guy called Blacker Dooch, and he was really my mentor who I'd been introduced to. And um, what happened was I came back to England, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And he was, his power as, as a political don, he'd be asked to sort out situations sometimes, you know. And there was another guy there who was a, Prominent Dom, um, Willie Huggett, ran a crew called the Black Roses, who yeah. are a very, very popular gang, you know, known syndicate in Jamaica. Well, a uh, gang, a gang out there. Well, yeah, yeah. We, well, the word gang doesn't even really exist. No. I mean, that's groups against neighbouring, you know, uh, yeah. neighbours and stuff. Yeah. So it's a British word, this yeah. gang is, right? Yeah. That's what a friend told me the other day. Yeah. And it really dawned on me, yeah. you know. But they are one of the constituency dons. He controls a crew of people, so a gang or a posse yeah. is what they're described as. He went to meet Willie um, to talk about some stuff, him and another guy, Bunny, and they were sitting down, they were talking, and a car drove in to the um, constituency. Now, understand it's very incredibly clicky, okay, and in that game you have a lot of firearms. You've got a lot of power in different constituents, different areas. That particular place, Maxfield Avenue, there's, you know, a lot of guns are kept there, you know, because they're at constant wars with yeah. rival posses. Yeah. Now, a car cannot just drive into those um, constituencies, right, without being picked up on straight away. Yeah. So usually a chain of events happens. So to cut a long story short, um, there was an incident with Willie. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, it's understood that a, um, a robbery had happened with some Colombians. Huge amount of money was taken in the States. I got back to Jamaica. It was an ongoing thing. You know, people had, you know, been executed as a result of it. Colombian neckties, the whole works. And Willie was the prime target of it. Um, Blacker was down there to meet Willie with two other guys and a car drove into constituency. The fact it drove in, you know, believed to be an unmarked yeah. police car, white Corolla, meant that his police, because everyone's got police down Jamaica, you pay off, mm. would have said to him, listen, there's a raid going on down there. Get all the big machinery out. 
So all the big guns had left the, left the constituency, um, you know, to be put in a neighbouring, you know, area. Yeah. And uh, the car drove in. Two guys, three guys got out with um, AK-47s, open fired at them all and shot them to pieces, you know? And I mean, literally shot them to pieces. I mean, AK-47 bullets are big like this, yeah, okay. you know, and the reports that people who were there told me, you know, they're pumping bullets when they're down, you know, legs dismantled, yeah. putting bullets through their head, you know what I mean, yeah. standing over them. And that was said to be a reprisal from the Colombians yeah. because, of course, even if Willie had a superintendent or someone who was on the payroll, who got information, mm. someone higher, like a deputy commissioner, yeah. would probably been on the Colombians' payroll. Yeah, okay. and he would have fed the false intelligence okay. back down the line. Okay. So the reality to me was this. No one's invincible. Yeah. And I would have been in Jamaica that day and I would have been there with them that day. Right, okay. And I would have been dead on that pavement that day. Wow. And it wasn't just one incident. <clears throat> there were lots of incidents that happened around that short spate of time. Another guy I was very close to had his head got shot in the head put in a boot of a car that was set on fire. There were a few more murders, you know, and it was a thing that was going on basically. Yeah. And um, I was so deeply, you know, trunched in the business, okay, and held a position around a lot of those syndicates who yeah. I worked with. Yeah. I figured maybe it's time for a break, try something else. Yeah. <laughs> and then I reverted back to music, you know. Sunsplash was the target. We went back to London we brought it, put it together. We brought it over here. Um, had a huge event at Victoria Park. It went without incident, which was a miracle because I remember it was like always an intervention, you know. I remember the football days at the warehouse parties, you know, inadvertently we were actually breaking up what were creating a peace between gangs because the football hooligans yeah. would go to the parties. There was never incident. Yeah. So they all got on. And, you know, Sunsplash, we were told, you know, there's 13 black or black killings in a short space of time. You know, they would just pull the event because it would be a massacre. And we said, listen, no, we can talk to community leaders. We can bring things in. And the thing went off without one incident. But unfortunately, um, as all things, as I said, you know, your luck sometimes is, is just bad. Yeah. Uh, some people I knew were involved in some car rackets and stuff. They were, you know, regularly seen at our offices. One morning, my door went through. It was a uh, national crime squad. They were then looking through into a car ring and racket. There was a vehicle sitting on my drive. It's quite funny. I have to laugh <laughs> about it because it's a beautiful big Mercedes. Yeah. And what we'd done was we actually gave it to my driver to drive around Wycliffe Sean. So Wycliffe had come over to yeah. the Sunspatch. He was driving around the back of a ringer. I thought if he got tugged, could you imagine yeah. newspapers, yeah. right? Anyway. They went in there, that turned out to be a ringer. There was other incidents with it and stuff. And uh, obviously then I was back in the, you know, I was back down because with a charge hanging over my head, the license wouldn't come again. And that would have been a quite a, you know, a drama. Anyway, yeah. cut a story short. Um, the police who were in involved in investigation now, they'd put me on bail, police bail, yeah. you know, yeah. because obviously, you know, they were looking into more things and, uh, as luck would have it, in the interim, they were supposed to come back and charge me. Anyway, this thing was starting to go on, go on, go on, go on. So two attempts were made to, you know, appear at the police station and charge me. And then eventually, um, they turned around our phone. I was, listen, are you, are you going to charge me this thing today? They said, no, 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 we can't get down there. We'll obviously, you know, we'll, we'll write to you. So I thought, fucking hell. Anyway, it dawned on me, they've released me from bail. So I, just, I said, listen, I said, 
this is the situation. I said, so what am I? He said, you ain't been charged. He said, um, you've been released from bail. I said, what stops me then going on holiday? He said, well, nothing. He said, obviously, you don't come back. They're not going to be too happy. Yeah. So I thought that would do. Yeah. Anyway, it was miserable. It was brainy. It was Jamaica where I come. Anyway, I flew back down now. Wasn't long before, obviously, I back at it again. Back at it again. And then we had another window opened up. That window was a big one. Um, people down there said, listen, we've got something now, which is a game changer. It was, okay, what's this one? He said, we've got a whole team of customs officers. It's like, nah, you ain't got that. Not in England, you ain't. It's like, yes, we have. I said, well, what's the take? He said, well, it's a million quid, and it'll put through any container you want, unchecked. Anyway, it was okay. Let's have a go. Um, cut a little story short. Um, we tried it, and it worked. So we started to do that. And um, we were bringing in contraband. There was an incident. What were you bringing in? We were bringing in weed yep. out of Jamaica. Yep. And uh, we were bringing containers in. Again, also from South bringing America. weed in again. Yeah, but, and also other containers we were bringing in from South America. Yeah. We're about getting too technical yeah. into what that was yeah. or what that wasn't. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, he was, we were making lots of money, huge amounts of money out of this, but he wasn't satisfied. He was talking to other groups of people. He put himself in the middle of an obo. Um, different set of police then picked up on him and they heard a container was coming in, offered the phones and they went down to the wharf, started checking for containers. Of course, everything that hadn't been cleared, what nothing port, was what in there. What port was this at? Tilbury. Tilbury, okay. Anyway, um, then they decided randomly to check containers that had been cleared. This particular one, they opened the sill and half a ton of cocaine fell out the back. <laughs> anyway, um, that was the biggest seizure in British history, by the way, at that time. What was that worth? £100 million estimated it as. Wow. Anyway, um, then obviously the police were in a predicament because... You had a team of customs officers that cleared that, and they knew they cleared it because it's impossible not to have gone through the X-ray without being detected. Yeah. But if they were to arrest them, the case would fall apart. Yeah. Because these are the people who are clearing containers, yeah. and plus all the other containers that they've cleared, who people are in prison for, would all be appealed. Yeah. And then the conversation so the orders, yeah. Yeah, yeah, massive yeah. Yeah. anyway. So they colluded together and uh, walked into a basically a very elaborate trap um, on the ninth of. I think it was the fourth, the ninth of December, two thousand and four. Yeah, and uh, everyone got arrested. Anyway, that was it. It was fucking doomsday. Yeah. Um, so where were you at the time? Where was I? Where I was arrested. Yeah, I was where straight were away. you? Oh no, no. I found myself in a in the market. Which the reason being was I didn't particularly trust one of my co-defendants. I had a feeling that he was going to be dipping into one of the bags, yeah. which he did. And that was the whole reason we got arrested. Because right. at the time, I said to him, I don't like this. It was going just a, bit, just a minute. It was cutting open in a bag and pulling out stuff. No. All right? That's how ridiculous people are. Anyway, cut on story short. Um, we all got arrested. We were all put on remand at Wandsworth. Slicer's visit. He said, well, you know, this is it. Game over. I said, okay, I'll figure it is game over. But. We're getting out of this because this is corruption up to the arse and they're hiding it. Anyway, it went to the stage where it was getting very, very, very tricky because they'd all closed ranks on us, right? Okay. Anyway. How many did they nick at the time? Seven. Seven. seven, seven, seven. Yes, okay. seven. So they had four drivers and three of us yeah. who were in a, in a, within the yeah. inner circle. Yeah. Anyway, we were kind of like big, big, big problem. Anyway, as the case was going closer to trial, we got an approach and they said, listen – um, we've got access to one of the officers who's leading the case. I said, what do you mean? Well, listen, he said, 
He's bent, right? And he's been reading the PII papers. The what papers? They, all right. So police, uh, intelligence services, okay. customs, they create documents. Yeah. It's their intelligence documents. They're called public interest immunity. Okay. So what they are, they they gather intelligence. It's phone taps. It's informants. Yeah. It's all kinds of things. Yeah. And this is how they gather intelligence to see what you're doing next. Yeah. So in these intelligence documents, some of the intelligence is true, some isn't. Yeah. One of the documents stated that one of my code defense had nine million pounds in um, foreign currency hidden in the boot of one of his cars. So he's looked at them and thought, well, he knows they're definitely at it down at the wolf. Yeah. And nothing ain't happened to them because they've got him with them. Yeah. So he's thinking, payday. Yeah. So approach got made and he said, right, for half a million quid, he'll leak all the PII. Yeah. So it was like, no brainer. So arrangements was made anyway. We paid him. And he stole out all the PII out of, out of Customs' ass yeah. headquarters and blamed it effectively on, a, on one of his colleagues yeah. in such a lovely way. Yeah. Anyway, the, we were still fucked because the papers were pretty much putting us further into trouble. Right. So it was like, what can we do? And I can't show him to my barrister or my solicitor. The only person who sees it was the judge, the police, and the uh, certain police, yeah. and the uh, prosecutor. So I was like... The documents ain't really that much of a help because they're saying bad things yeah, about us. Yeah. But I know the jury definitely can't see them. Yeah. But I'm thinking, all right, so the day I was going to give evidence, I've took a one of them, put them in my jacket pocket, and I've, you know, got into the dock. So when the prosecutors come at me and it's going to be Mr. Pritchard, I've looked at him, smiled, and I've pulled the papers out and I've started reading stuff off. To the jury, quality to the effect of Simon innocent, yeah, yeah, and his yeah, papers yeah. prove it. Yeah, I've come out the dock. I've they said I threw him at the judge. Then from I passed them to him. They come out my hands. Yeah. Anyway, he grabbed his water bottle, ran for the chambers. Yeah, the guards have grabbed me. They've tuffled me to the floor. One of the women in the jury's burst out crying. <laughs> anyway, court's been cleared. Come back in, and they're like, um, jury, like, what are the papers? The judge is right. Don't mention those papers. They're not for you. <laughs> anyway, as the prosecutor starts cross-examining me, I start talking about the papers. So he stops court, gets them all out again. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned them yeah, papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got nothing to lose. 40 <clears throat> yeah, years. I'm not was it full? 40 years I was looking at. You're joking. That's what mate. my sentence would have been, 40 years. Right? Oh, my God. It was the biggest importation of cocaine in British history. Right? That was an example would have been made. Right? Yeah. Anyway, um, the jury now are getting frustrated. Gets to the point where they keep asking the judge. Judge loses his rank and goes, I'm right, if you mention those papers again, you're going to be downstairs in the cell with him. And the to the jury? Like, yeah, the jury's like, what? What? Yeah, yeah. What? You're he said yeah, he's yeah, innocent. Yeah, yeah. You're telling us yeah. we mentioned something. He said proves innocent. <laughs> yeah. You're going to lock us up. Yeah. Anyway, a presto, bang. Jury's got out to consider the four co-defendants who were the, the drivers all been found not guilty. So I'm thinking, I've gone. Anyway, yeah. cut on story short. The jury were locked. They couldn't work out a verdict on us. So they give us hung jury anyway. It's better than getting found guilty. Yeah. So we've reverted back to Wandsworth. A retrial has been set. In the midst of this now, I'm thinking, well, I've got a problem because there's no way on earth that this is going to happen again because they know what I'm about and what I could do. Yeah. Anyway, my um, fiance at the time, she calls and said, listen, um, there's this investigative journalist called Donald McIntyre. Yeah. He wants to make a documentary about you. 
And I'm thinking, what on earth does he want to make a documentary about me for? This geezer doorstops people. Yeah. He's like a Roger Cook kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I think this is a rip. I think, hold on. If he gets on this, if I can twist this, yeah. there's going to be a documentary coming out. So if I do go down and they start to see all this madness, there's an appeal coming. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> literally I say, give the green light and they're making this documentary. They're, you know, following everyone, more friends around, yeah. interviewing them, talking about this whole story, yeah. my life story, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, while this documentary thing is going on, in the interim, court case is coming up. So thinking, right, how do I do this one? So I'm supposed to now be handcuffed to give evidence because they don't want me to do the same yeah. trick. But fortunately, a website comes up and a Turkish um, domain and all the PI papers are on there. Yeah. When my co-defendant's giving his evidence now in chief, which means he goes through his yeah. case, he then says justiceandcrime.dk and like judges what? And he starts repeating the website. And like, what are you talking about? He's like, that's where all the corrupt customs officers, that's where all the papers <clears> are. <throat> anyway, there's pandemonium in the court again. Drag them out. Don't look at your laptops. Don't look yeah, at the yeah. information. <laughs> anyway, they're trying to get this website down there. Because it's in Turkey, they're having problems. Anyway, uh, the FBI get involved, right? So the FBI now bring it down and take down a whole region yeah. of this whole village's websites, yeah. basically, to get this one site down. Anyway, a pirate radio station. Locally, yeah, also happens to start broadcasting the um, the uh, the name of the website. Yeah. So now it's a mess because you've got all these things. You've got informants' names in there. You've got undercover police. You've got all these operations now yeah. being compromised. And now you've just got this massive tin of worms, which is just starting to swell yeah. and swell and swell yeah. anyway. <laughs> of course, the jury are in dismay because the judge is telling them you can't refer to this, you can't do this, you can't do that. So basically, it was frustrating the life out of the jury. When they've come back after three days, hung jury again. So we were acquitted. And then that was obviously, you know, uh, well, you know, that's the biggest thing a man could ever expect, isn't it? Wow. Do you know what I mean? 40 years, wow. everyone acquitted, all seven of us, free. Amazing. You know? and, then, and then what? Don't tell me you got back at it again. <laughs> <laughs> As they say, the road to hell is favoured with good intentions. Yeah. And that's why I tell young people sometimes, and it's really important, this life is incredibly glamorous yeah. and incredibly exciting, and certain parts of it are. Yeah. But it will inevitably go wrong, yeah. and there will be a massive price to pay. Yeah. And the death, destruction, and misery that we seed back in for profit yeah. and to make money yeah. isn't worth it at the end. Because when you look at the damage it does cause – not just people that you know, the people you don't know, yeah. their families, yeah. a price has to be paid at some point. Anyway, so that was that. Um, and this was 2000 and... This was 2006, I was acquitted. Six. Yep, April 2006. After two juries, I was... How I, long did I that go on for? 18 months, I was on remand for. Really? Yeah, a year and a half. So that was that Pacific episode. What a feeling that must have been. It was great feeling, some minimal feeling as well, because I remember being downstairs yeah. um, at Blackfriars Cray and Court and my two co-defendants, They, when you are acquitted, you know, you're down there for a little while yeah. and then you're called upstairs. Yeah. I remember one of my co-defendants, he got called up first. He went, there was two of us left. And then my other co-defendant went, then I was left. And I slid on that bench and I thought to myself, it's not normal. I'm a blessed child. I've yeah. got to be blessed yeah. because that doesn't fall into your lap. 
you don't yeah. do that, you know. And I felt as spiritual, I'm quite a spiritual person. Yeah. I felt as my mother, I was a very spiritual person, you know, I felt her, my, you know, my, my, you know, my forefathers reached out to me, mm. do you know what I mean? Mm. And they lifted me from that because you just don't, you just don't, you don't get opportunities like that. Absolutely. You don't get windows like that. Yeah. But a window was meant to stop. Yeah. And um, I did try for a while. And, How long uh, did you stop for? I stopped for, in total, nearly seven years, you know, which is a big a big thing. I opened a film studio in Essex. Um, I had a series of different businesses, you know. I had a car company. We clicked what car. Frank Brudo was the... What did you miss about going legit, <clears throat> about not being legit? Well, to be honest you, in a nutshell, um, I, I, had, I, I came away from the game. I yep. did come away from the game. I moved out to Essex. You know, my little boy was born Hayden. And um, I wanted to do the whole dad thing. Yeah. And I did for a little while. Wanted to be legitimate. People, you know, you have to cut everyone off yeah. when you do that. Yeah. You know, it sounds harsh, but you can't have anyone around you who's at it. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be brought into yeah. it. It's inevitable. And, and the temptation. Yeah. To yeah. cut a long story short, won't get too far into yeah. it because obviously proceeds yeah. of crime might have you, but yeah. I found myself in a situation and, uh, you know, I got something with someone. Um, they'd had a series of events leading up to that where they'd been getting people arrested for different, you know, different situations and things. I was at the end of that chain and um, I went to uh, collect something with them, which I'd arranged, so I took something for that. They told me to drive with them, um, which I was reluctant to do. This the whole, didn't feel right about it. And um, I said, okay, I'll drive behind you. I'll take my Range Rover. If the police do sort of come to intercept, I'll run them off the road, yeah. just take off. Yeah. Uh, police did come. I did run him off the road and he just stopped in a lay-by. And that was it. And then obviously it went to court. He claimed I had him under duress because of my... Had him under what? Duress. It means threat for life. Right, okay. So that means basically I'd ordered him to do that. And, um, you know, ultimately that's what it was. But it didn't really wash, to be honest, John. There was a whole episode of stuff there um, where, you know... Um, because there was other people he'd done it to, and so there's like three other people and two other people on trial with us. Yeah. One of the guys got acquitted. Two of us went back for trial. He actually got found guilty on the first trial yeah. because obviously all the nonsense he was trying to do. Yeah. Again and again, I was doing you know my looking through the holes, the gaps. Yeah. One particular thing I knew he was going to turn on me. Who was going to turn doors, on you? My co-defendant. Well, okay. Because what happened was. He was separated from us. You this know? is when you were got. This is when you got really, you, you got off, and then you had to after again, got seven released, years later. I was okay. Again, right. Okay. Anyway, yeah. I knew it was, was wrong. Well, I was made a category prisoner this time, yeah. so I was taken to Belmarsh, basically. Um, so you got. So you got. You got nicked. Got nicked. Yeah. What did I, you get? What in the end? Yeah. Fifteen years. You got fifteen. Fifteen. So you had years. seven years of going clean. Yeah. Then seven you years got back clean, at it again. I went back at it again. And what were you, what were you doing at that time? I had a film studio, so I opened no, up. No, but film when you went back at it again, was it oh, cocaine? Yeah, cocaine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, six kilos of cocaine, you know? Six kilos, what's that on the street? Um, £250,000. Okay. A very small amount yeah. of product, yeah. you know? And obviously, the sentence that they gave me was completely at, off the Richter scale. Because they know? knew seven because years before as well. Because they felt that I'd got away with so much okay. for so long, okay. you know? Anyway, um. I found a few holes in the case, yeah. right, when the first trial ran, as you do, yeah. right? Um, so things I knew would happen, like, for example, he decided, because um, I tried to tailor his defence, 
because I thought, you know, you can't go and say around and say that you've got the gear and this is what's happened. So what then happened was um, I tried to say, listen, the route to go now is to turn around and say that you were, you know, dropping off money. Yes. And obviously these people I thought maybe robbing you as dressed as police, yeah. and that's what's happened. Yeah. So he wasn't going with that, but I tried to pay the defence for him, so I read it out for him, and I can't, I knew it was tricky, so I said to my the guy next door, I said, listen, write this in your handwriting, don't in my handwriting yeah. way. Yeah. So I put him the note through the door. In court, suddenly, he's got his barrister to stand up and say, Mr. Pritchard has tried to coerce his defence yeah. for him, brought out the note. Of course, I knew it wasn't my handwriting. Yeah. So then I've pulled about that in my handwriting, it's my note. Yeah. So caused the friction in the, yeah. in, in the court, in which case his barrister had to sit down and stop asking me questions. He got found guilty at that. Two of us got hung juries. One guy got acquitted. And then in that interim, ironically, his co his own cellmate came to me once. Listen, he said, I found this note. I said, what note? Well, he himself was starting to write these things at one stage to sort of, you know, create the defence. Yeah. And I thought, fuck, that is his handwriting and that is his note. Yeah. So what I'll do now is use this in my... Defence on the yeah. second trial, yeah. the hung jury, yeah. 200 years home again yeah. anyway. So gave it to an officer. He put it in the um, safe at Belmarsh, yeah. which was the um, where they keep all the exhibits. Yeah. Oh, most secure prison in the country. Anyway, coming up to trial now, I'm calling for the evidence to be brought from the, um, from the, from the safe. Suddenly, I can't get the evidence because they can't find it. Anyway, this note disappears from yeah. the safe at Belmarsh, which is ludicrous. Yeah. So you got away with 40 years being put inside. You've then come clean and gone, right, I'm going legit for seven years. You've then got back at it. Then what happened when you got back at it? Well, as I said, you know, sometimes in life you go too far, you can't yeah. turn back and you will pay the price. Um, I found myself in a situation. I got caught with six kilos of gear. Um, cocaine. Cocaine, yeah. right. Ended up getting a 15-year sentence for that. Yeah. By the grace of God, it got repealed to 10 and a half years. Yeah. And during that time in prison, one positive thing came from it. Yeah. I saw a lot of young people in there doing huge sentences, yeah. you know, and a lot of them were connected to postcode gangs. And looking at my history, especially my mother's history and what my parents have been through as community leaders, I felt, you know, these young people were wasting their lives, you know, yeah. and I felt responsible because had I not been involved in the drug industry for so long yeah. and, you know, done it in such a way that I had no conscience, no heart, yeah. a lot of these kids I felt wouldn't have been in the situations they were in today in gangs because yeah. a lot of these wars are territorial and yeah. over gangs, over drugs. And I wanted to do something about it, you know. So we set about in Belmarsh to try to bring about a course, which was called the One Postcode at the time, where we could approach young people because the con incidents in there were constant. They were involved in gangs. As they came into the prison, you know, they were instantly in conflict. There was instant fights, yeah. you know. And we said, you know, give us a chance. Let's get together some mentors, older guys who are in the gang thing, yeah. but wanted to kind of make a difference and make their sentences go easier by getting better placements at different prisons. And eventually with a the governor there, a uh, lady by the name Beverly Clark, head of safe custody, she said, you know what? going to give you guys a go at this. Good. And we put together a group of mentors. They were going to the first night centre. When they saw young people coming in, first thing the prison guard asked them is, are you part of a gang? They say no instantly because they think they can get more prison time. So our guys would say, we know you're part of a gang. Sign a compact. Yeah. And what we'll do is we'll put you on a different wing and we'll arrange a sit down between two more senior guys yeah. and we'll have a, a treaty between you Lovely. both, you know, to break the compact. 
then there's going to be issues anyway. It was an it was an amazing success. Eighty something about 82, 83 percent of um, assaults in Belmosh instantly was reduced in three months, Brilliant. which is unheard of. Brilliant. And you know it made a massive difference. And I got the feeling I could be a person that could do something. Yeah. So when I Finally got released, you know. So I what set year about did you get? What did you, did you get? 2013, February. February 2013. So February 2013. When? That's when I came out. That's when oh, I got released. Okay. Right? February, sorry, sorry, February 2019. 19. So yeah, how many so years did you actually do in the five end? Five and a half years I've done in the end. Wow. You know? Yeah. So I've done most of that as well in dispersal prisons. Yeah. So I was made an ACAP prisoner. Yeah. Um, I served at the Belmarsh. Then I was put to a place called... Um, Whitemore, yeah. which is like one of, you know, generally one of the dispersal prisons out of the eight there yeah. are in England, or five in England, obviously, and there's three which are remand dispersal, yeah. you know. And, uh, you know, I opened my eyes to a lot of things. I opened my eyes to a lot of young people that were wasting their lives doing sentences they'll never come out of prison, you know, all for what? Yeah. And uh, I decided when I do come out of prison, I'm going to make a difference, you know. And a lot of these people did have aspirations to do better things. And I started the AP Foundation, and it's been a journey I've been in ever since, you know. Andrew we, Pritchard Foundation. Well, you know what? I don't really like to have that label no. on it because people push up our egos. Yeah. I would look at alternative pathways. Yeah. I would look at, you know, action plan, whatever it is. But, yeah, yeah Andrew Pritchard Foundation, you will coin it yeah. as that, and everyone will coin it yeah. as that. But the reality of it is, as I said, it's my belief is a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. And I look at this foundation as a vessel, almost like the Ottoman Empire, yeah. when everyone keeps their sovereignty, all the big, small, whoever they are, who's got their own you know, business, their own foundation, their own CIC, can come together with us yeah. and we can actually you know, go to the Ministry of Justice. We can, we can go into communities as a collective Brilliant. and work together to change young people's lives, you know, because to me, that is my goal, you know. At the end of the day, call it whatever you want, call it conscience, it's caught up on me. Yeah. You know, I don't want to see any more young people wasting their lives. I don't see any more parents, you know, suffering. Yeah. I wasted a good part of my life in prison or on the run. Yeah. You know, three sons, yeah. you know, two of those sons, I spent so much valuable time away from them and out of their lives because I was on the run. Yeah. Youngest one spent most of his life in prison. So I say to myself, what was, was it worth it? Yeah. Never worth it. My parents, amazing people. I watched them die six months apart from each other, do you know. I saw my first um, baby mother die. You know, I didn't see her. She died of breast cancer when I was in prison. I've seen all the things that you don't want to see yeah. happen. Yeah. And you're away from those people yeah. when it happens. By the grace of God, I was just released from my pe- before my mother died. As I said, my father died six months after. But I wasted and I, I put that on them. You know, I, I, I watched them deteriorate because of that, yeah. you know, and no person, no young person, especially, I'd obviously take this journey. What I'd have learned was the entrepreneurial thing I've had in my life, I want to give that part of me yeah. back. Yeah. See you know what I mean? Not the negative part of the drug smuggling, all the other stuff that goes with it. And that's why we now run business courses. Yeah. We've got a course at the moment, which is free for anyone to go on who's over 16 years old. They can sign up on atlasdigitallearning.com, which is a sister company. Yeah. You know, we, I've got a fund which will help people set up their business. Any good business we see, we can get involved in that and help them along the way, shepherd that business along. Yeah. You know, and uh, a series of courses in specialist areas. You know, if someone wants to be a promoter, 
we could open that door for them. Yeah. If someone wants to become a, you know, a, I don't know, a fashion designer, yeah. we could open that door for them. All the contacts yeah. and network of people along yeah. the way are going to be utilised yeah. now, as well as the guys who I have met in prison, who I've met on the streets, who have got their own skill set as mentors. That's what I want to utilise to put something back in, yeah, you know, and change lives. Because at the end of the day, as people, we have to look back and say, what is my legacy? Yeah. My legacy, I don't want to be, this guy was a massive drug smuggler. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Mate, massive respect, mate. We try. Yeah, massive respect. Andy, I've really, really enjoyed this, mate. Thank you. So have I. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. I could speak for hours. Thank you very much for making the effort, mate, and it's great seeing you. Take care. 